God according to His divine essence is impassable. God is not moved by creatures. There's nothing that we can do to to force His hand or affect a change in Him because He's eternal. Uh, the sequence of moments is, is not something that God experiences in Himself. So that there's, there's not, with God there is no uh, reaction or response. It's, with God it is not like it is with us. We would say, when this happened, then this happened. With God it's not that way. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, assumed to Himself the nature of a man. A nature just like ours. So that when we see the man, Christ Jesus, acting, living and acting in the world, we have one who is true God, very God of very God, light of light. And yet, also, true man. The way that Christ acts in His humiliation does teach us some things about God, but not in a one-to-one correlation. In other words, if we see Christ uh, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, well, that doesn't mean that in God something happens that brings Him to a place of gladness or delight, whereas before He wasn't and now He is. But in God, He is full, eternal, matchless delight, unchanging delight. But we see a little bit of that in, in the way that Christ interacts in the world. I want to work our way through the Gospels, and I just want you to get a picture of, of the Lord Jesus before we get to our text. Matthew 20 or Matthew 4 verses 23 or just verse 23 he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people I want to point out as Jesus begins his earthly ministry he immediately begins to meet every need of the people He's teaching, He's proclaiming the gospel. He's meeting all, of, all spiritual needs. He's giving light, illumination, understanding, the power of God and salvation. He's preaching it, bringing it to men. Healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That, that's all, all we have. It, when it comes to our needs, we have spiritual needs. We're blind, we're darkened, ignorant. We need the gospel, we need illumination. And then in this world we have afflictions. Sufferings of various kinds. Christ comes meeting the needs of men. Let that sort of hang over everything else we see. Matthew 5 verse 1. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain. His going up on the mountain follows after His seeing, His perception. He sees something. He goes. That's all I want you to see. Matthew chapter 9 verse 2. 
And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again, God is eternal, infinite, boundless, bottomless, immutable compassion. The man Christ Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Well, Mark, let's start in Mark 1 first. Mark chapter 1. Verses 40 and 41. A leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling to him. Kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Verse 41. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. That would be as if he said, the leper says, if you want to, you can make me clean. Jesus, moved with pity, said, I want to. And he touched him. And he healed him. Mark chapter 10. Verse 14. The disciples have just rebuked the people bringing children. But verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Story of the, the widow of Nain. Luke chapter 7, verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Again, Christ, the man, He had to go about it like this. He couldn't have compassion on her. According to His human nature, He couldn't have compassion on her until He saw her. When He saw her, he had compassion. That's how it worked with him. Luke 13, verse 12. I'll read 11 and 12. Behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, He called her over and said to her, Woman, 
you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Turn to John chapter 5. Verse 6. Verses 5 and 6. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, Get up and take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. Turn to John 6, verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And then to put a bookend on where we began, John chapter 11, maybe not a bookend, but a, another, another picture, John 11 verses 33 to 35. The well-known story of Lazarus. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Or if you have the footnote there, the word is indignant. filled with rage and anger. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, the Jews say, See how he loved him. I'm of the opinion that Jesus is not weeping just because he's sad that Lazarus is dead. I think Lazarus, I think Jesus is weeping because he's indignant. Um, But he saw this. The man Jesus, this is the eternal Son of God in flesh. He's going about the world. He comes into contact in in a sequence, a moment of a sequence of moments. One minute he's not seeing someone. Then in a moment he sees, he's moved. When he saw, he said, when he saw. He act. When when he saw, he wept. The man Jesus was affected. He was able to receive these things through his eyes, through his ears, through his senses. He received and then it done something to him. Okay. Turn to 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you 
have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We're answering the question, how can we go about obtaining and maintaining unity as a church? The simple answer is, if every one of us would just act like Jesus Christ, that would settle, that would settle the issue. Um, we don't look at Him enough. We don't know what to, to, to fix our eyes upon to change us. We look at everything else. That's what we do. We look at everything else. The answer is to be like Christ. But I think that's I think if we were if we had the time we could prove that that's what Peter is saying. Finally, all of you act like the Lord Jesus in all that you do, and and that would settle all of your issues. Peter has said first that we ought to have uh, unity of mind. Uh, unity of mind is a means and it is the end. We, we labor after unity of mind so that we can be united, but being united is also being united in mind. And essentially this means that we have to be the, a people of the book. We have to be students of Scripture. We have to be willing to bring every circumstance in our life to the bar of the text. You say, what, what, do, what does God say? We have to resolve in ourselves. I will believe what God has said. I will live the way God commands, period. And if we will all do that, we will be united in mind more and more and more as all of us are sanctified. And we are to do this together, not in isolation. A lot of times we think that our coming to the Scriptures and, and discerning what we are to believe and how we are to live, it, we're supposed to do it like, like going into a voting booth you know, a sectioned off table where you can't see what anybody else is doing or when you're at the ATM and you're about to punch in your number and the, the little thing comes up, hide, the hand comes up, hide, your, hide the keypad so nobody can see your numbers. A lot of times we think that studying the Scriptures is like that. Coming to, to, to firm belief and coming to practice is sort of like a, a hide your answers uh, uh, thing. It, that's not true. We should be willing to do this together with one another but also in concert with, with the church Historically, but we, Peter says you need to be united in mind. And we saw that we need to be sympathetic, so knit together in love for one another that we are affected by the feelings of our brothers and sisters. And then last Lord's Day, we looked at sort of the centerpiece of all of these, which is brotherly love. A spirit-born affection for other Christians stemming from our relation to God as Father and Christ as Brother producing in us a willingness to give our lives for the well-being of their souls. Brotherly love. We need to be others-oriented, ready to feel with and serve one another in love. Well, now we come to the final two traits in this verse. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The final two phrases here are a tender heart and a humble mind. Now, because there is diversity in the history of this verse, some of you will have be pitiful, be courteous, or be tender-hearted, be courteous. Some translations have a, a mixture of the two words, and it would be worded in English, merciful, modest, humble, or pitiful, kind, and meek. But what we end up with substantially is three words 
if we translated them literally, the first one would mean literally a good heart. The second one would be literally humble-minded. And then the third one is literally friendly-minded. And if you looked at humble-minded and friendly-minded, and even in the Greek language you could see they're, they're very near uh, kin words. So then, if we are to be the kind of church that is pursuing and obtaining and maintaining unity, then we must be people described by these terms. Tender-hearted, humble, and friendly. Now, like the other words, I just want to try to illustrate these things. Paint a picture of what this looks like. The first one is tender-hearted. This is, I think, the most colorful of these words. And I'm going to spend the most time on this one. The word, again, is literally good heart. Or, if we wanted to be even more literal, good guts. Now you say, why would you, why would you translate the word guts? Well, this word is made up of two different root words. The first one means good. And then the second term is used many places in Scripture, but one place specifically, Acts 1.18. Speaking of Judas Iscariot, it says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. We would say he burst open and his guts poured out. That word bowels is the, the second part of the, the, the words that make up this word good heart or tender hearted. The, the the term is obviously used metaphorically for the deepest inner movements of one's heart or one's soul, one's affections, the bowels. And it's often translated using terms like compassion or pity or mercy. Like all of the traits that we've seen, we never see this more vividly than in the man Christ Jesus. As we read in Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Literally, he had bowels for them. He was moved in his deepest inward parts for these people. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless. They had no shepherd. When he saw them, what he saw moved him. He was affected. Their condition affected him. We could even say it knotted up his stomach when he saw what, what was happening, or it turned his stomach. Their situation turned him, obviously very closely related to the issue of sympathy. And that's because, as, as some would point out, it seems like Peter is following a poetic structure here. The, the centerpiece is brotherly love, and then right outside of that, sympathy and tender heart are very similar ideas. And then right outside of that, humble-minded and unity of, of mind. They're, they're, he's, he's building a, a sort of a poetic structure in what he's saying. So we've already seen sympathy, but this is a little different, and I'll, I'll get to maybe what the difference is in a minute. But the Lord Jesus was compassionate. He was moved in His inward self. James says in James 5.11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And the word merciful there is the same word except it's amplified. It would be translated many bowels or much bowels. The, the Lord is full of compassion. Not in an, uh, an affected way, God Himself, but He is infinite, full, unchangeable 
compassion, bowels for people, His people. Now, coming back to our, our text, why then would the word be translated a tender heart? Why is that the, the translation? If it's literally rendered a good heart, I think we would ask, well, what is a good heart? What, what would lead someone to translate this phrase tender heart if it means good heart? Well, because we, we've got to know what is a good heart, what is a bad heart. If this trait is going to be descriptive of us, we need to know what a good heart is. And I think maybe the best way to understand what a good heart is is to first consider what a bad heart is. What is a bad heart? If we believe that the Holy Spirit's analogies are useful and helpful, and I do, then when God promises that He will take out a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh, an analogy of the new birth, that would lead me to conclude a heart of stone is bad, the heart of flesh is good. That's, that's the, the picture. That's a bad heart being replaced with a good heart. Stone heart replaced with a fleshly heart. If you, if you think of a heart, your actual physical heart, it's a muscle. It has to move to be useful. It has to be able to receive blood and then pump out the blood. If it can't do that, if it can't receive and then put out, it's useless. And that's what a hard heart is, a heart of stone. It can't do that. It cannot do the very thing that a heart is meant to do. So it has to be replaced. A bad heart is a heart of stone or a hard heart. A regenerate person has a heart of stone, a hard heart. But even a Christian can act sometimes toward others with what is similarly called a hard heart. And this is why Peter has to give the command. The issue for Peter here is not unregenerate versus born again. It's the attitude of our hearts as Christians towards our brothers and sisters. We are to have a good heart, not a bad heart. A bad heart is a hard heart. So then a good heart would be a soft heart or a tender heart, an impressionable heart. And that's why they would translate it a tender heart. Listen to several verses that describe a hard heart. This is, these are all different verses from Exodus 7, 8, and 9. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen. He hardened his heart and would not listen. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. And in, in all but that last instance, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart manifests itself in what? He would not listen. His heart was hard. His heart was unreceptive. And then the last one, he would not let the people go. He was not concerned about their situation. He did not respond for them because his heart was hard. There was an unwillingness in him to be receptive and pliable to everything that was happening right before his very eyes. He was hardened. In Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we read this. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, again, He entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether He would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse Him. And He said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath 
to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. Nothing. They wouldn't answer. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, how was the the hardness of their heart shown? Well, it was shown in that they were not moved in the least by this man's suffering. They didn't care whether he got better or not. They were hard. Their hearts were not tender. They were unreceptive. They were closed off. That's a hard heart. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, speaking of the lost, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Verse 19, they have become callous. Hardness of heart. Immediately defined as callous or past feeling. Some of you men, you have calluses on your hands. They're past feeling. It's become hardened. That's a bad heart. It does not do what a heart is supposed to do. Peter says we are to have good hearts. The opposite of hard would be tender. Tender hearts. Imagine that you or one of these children are walking through a parking lot in the summertime wearing shorts and they stumble and fall. And the, the grainy, gritty asphalt tears off the top layer of skin off of their knee, scrapes it right off and exposes the, the, the under flesh. Some of you probably just got cold chills. I get cold chills whenever I think of things like this. That's going to hurt. It's, a lot of times it's immediately red, but you, you put some medicine on it, you cover it up, you go about your day. That evening you get home, you hop in the shower or the bathtub. That warm water hits that sore spot. What happens? It hurts. You, you might have forgotten about it until that point, and then you don't forget about it anymore. Why is that? It's because that wound has been kept tender, soft, and moist by medicine, a bandage and all that. Throughout the day, it's, it's very sensitive to everything that would touch it. The nerves have been exposed. It's tender. That's, that's the picture here. Now, you, you get up the next day. Maybe you've forgotten about it through the night. But then when you go to put on your pants, you don't forget about it anymore. You're reminded once again of where the sore spot is. A shock of pain goes up your spine. Why? Because it's sensitive. It's tender. The nerves are excessively Sensitive. You, you never know how much you use a body part or touch a body part until it's hurt. And then you realize, man, I touch this thing all the time. The, the, the pain is like an alarm bell. Every time it's touched, shocked, shocked, shocked. Why? Because it's tender. It's sensitive. That's the picture here. That's what we should have in our minds when we read tender hearts. Hearts that are sensitive. Hearts that are easily moved or that are receptive and responsive to the slightest touch. We are not to be calloused or hardened toward one another. We are to remain sensitive. We should have hearts that are quick to pity one another. We should be prone to sense the needs of one another quickly because we're sensitive to the needs of our brothers and sisters. It wasn't long after the fall that the opposite trait was exemplified in Cain. His brother's blood is crying up from the ground and Cain's response is, am I my brother's keeper? What, what am I supposed to be keeping up with him, watching after him? 
But what was God's disposition? God heard. God knew. God was, we could say in human terms, moved by the, cry out, the crying of, of Abel's blood. That should be the disposition of our hearts. Sensitive to one another. Moved quickly to action by one another. Especially with regard to infirmities. And that's why the word pity is often used. Because pity is considering someone in a low estate, in their infirmities, and having the compassion to act for them. A hard heart is unwilling to be touched by the infirmities of others. A tender heart is extra sensitive to the infirmities of others. A hard heart is unconcerned about the thoughts and feelings of others. A tender heart is taken up with and sensitive to the thoughts and feelings of others. A lot of times, because we want to avoid what we think is the fear of man, we swing all the way to the other extreme where we completely write off all of the feelings and thoughts of other people. And, and, and again, we, we think that's virtuous. Well, I don't, I don't care what anybody thinks, but that's not, that's not human. That's not humanity. It's unnatural to disregard our fellow man. And it's unsupernatural to disregard our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul uses... The same word in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Tender-hearted. And Calvin, commenting on the term there, says that to be tender-hearted toward others is, quote, to cultivate that true humanity which is affected by everything that happens to them in the same manner as if we were in their situation. Sounds like sympathy. He goes on, the contrary of this is the cruelty of those iron-hearted, barbarous men by whom the sufferings of others are beheld without any concern, whatever. Very close to sympathy. I think we would say if sympathy is fellow feeling, then tender-heartedness is the soil out of which the flower of fellow feeling will grow. The disposition of your heart that will allow you to feel with others. It must be tender and soft. And there again, Calvin compares true humanity to barbarous men. In other words, it's not natural to be unconcerned about the feelings of other people. To be human is to be sensitive to the needs of other humans. How do I know that? Because I've got the story of the life of the most true man that's ever lived. But sin hardens us. And I'll say this, we don't guard our hearts. And we become calloused to human suffering by all of the garbage that we put in front of our eyes and in our ears. Things that human beings were not meant to see or hear of or experience on a normal basis are our entertainment. And we become calloused. And so now we live in a culture where if someone is suffering, people gather around and pull out their cell phones. Because it is to them entertainment. Think of, I could show this to somebody and they will like my video. Right? There's no softness of heart for one another. We have become, as a, as a race, inhuman. That's not normal. And among the saints especially, this must not be. We should be tender-hearted people, not just as humans, but as humans under the influence of the Spirit of God. Acting according to that true, redeemed humanity 
and with the love of God in our hearts. The heart or the, the inner man, the seat of the affections, was meant by God to be tender and to be soft, to be pliable. Hearts, uh, we were, we were, we're supposed to be sensitive to external stimuli. We are supposed to be affected and easily stirred by what we see. But we're calloused. We could all go home today and read the story of our Lord being crucified and not, not drop a tear because we're hard, we're calloused. We ought not to be that way. When our Lord saw Jerusalem, when He saw Jerusalem, He wept. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion. His heart was tender toward humanity. Knowing that they would turn against Him. Knowing that they would cry out for His death, and yet He was moved for them. The, the truest man, under the fullest measure of the Holy Spirit, without measure... And this is how he acted. He was tender. He was soft. He was not hardened toward people. And so for us, if we're going to be unified, then we have to be willing to be tender toward one another. Tender hearted. Our heart, often our hearts are sympathetic toward terrible suffering. Maybe we, maybe we do have a little bit of a, a movement when we see awful suffering. Our, our hearts might be moved as we think about the lost. Our inward parts are knotted up if we see and hear of, of the, the, the trials and struggles and victories of, of missionary work in hard places. And yet how often do we have those same sensitivities to the common needs of people that we actually know and love? There are things that will stir us. It's just usually not us. Right? That's just how we are. I, I didn't watch fully, but I don't think at any point this morning when that door opened and anybody came in or when people came up the stairs, I didn't notice any sentimental music begin to play. I didn't look and notice anybody walking and acting in slow motion. It was just real life. It, real life doesn't have those effects that are meant to stir up emotions in us. In real life, all we have is what is born in us by the Holy Spirit, not what's churned up by carnal means. And it's in real life that we discover how hard our hearts really are. It's easy to be stirred by those other means, but that's not real. Very often we will, we will talk about other types of churches, uh, regular principal folks, we will talk about other churches and we will say they couldn't worship if they turned on the lights and unplugged the sound system and turned off the, the mind-numbing, chest-thumping music. Well, you couldn't even worship. But we can't be moved with pity toward people without the same kind of effects, music and, and video graphics and things like that. That's very often how it is. In real life, we don't get slow motion and we're not moved. We can't let our experiences with sinful Men harden us toward one another. The word our culture uses is jaded. And a lot of people, will, will, even Christians, will use that as their, their excuse. Well, I've just been hurt too many times. I've been jaded. And therefore, they, they, they will close themselves off and lock up and they, they, they don't yield themselves to anyone. They ignore people. That's not good. We can't allow sin to callous us so that we're not sensitive toward one another. Again, look at Christ. Has there ever been a man more sensitive to the sins of the people around him 
if there were ever a man who had the excuse to say, you know what, I've just been burned too many times, it would have been him. And yet there's never a man more tender towards other men. We, we could view matters like ignorance or blind spots or even errors in one another like infirmities. These are infirmities that we might have. How, how do you respond to infirmities? Are we going to harden ourselves and ignore it and say, well, that's their problem. It's not mine. I know what I believe. I know what I do. Or will we remain sensitive to one another and pity one another and lend help to one another? We are commanded to be tender-hearted toward one another. The second word is translated humble mind, or we could just say humble. If we are to obtain and maintain unity, there must be humility amongst us. Remember what we saw in, in, as we surveyed verses in the New Testament, Ephesians 4, verse 2, "...walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility." This is a part of our duty. If we're to maintain the, the spirit of, of peace between us, then we have to exercise humility. Romans 12, 16, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This would be the negative. Here's what not to do. The prohibition, do not be haughty. Never be wise in your own sight. The opposite of that is humble-minded. Associate with the lowly. Don't be pride-minded. Be humble-minded. Don't be haughty. Live with humility. A haughty-minded person thinks highly of themselves and very often they will refuse to associate with people who they deem to be lower than them. Why? Because they're wise in their own sight. They think themselves to be wise. God forbids that. And the opposite of it is humility. Humble-mindedness. Paul says in Philippians 2.3, In humility count others more significant than yourselves. Colossians 3.12 is almost a parallel to what Peter is saying here. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is a part of the redeemed image of God that we are to be putting on as believers. Humility. Right thinking and proper evaluation of ourselves. And we're to hold that with us in all of our interactions with one another. Even, even almost like we view other people through this lens of having already rightly assessed ourselves. This is what we saw from Romans 12. We, when, when we put on, when we are high-minded, when we think highly of ourselves or consider ourselves wise in our own eyes, we, we put on... Pride goggles, it's, it's like logs in our eyes. You're unable to see and help other people because you think so highly of yourself. God says don't be that way. We must be humble. Calvin again, he says, We know that it is the chief bond to preserve friendship when everyone thinks modestly and humbly of himself. As there is nothing on the other hand which produces more discords than when we think too highly of ourselves. Wisely then does Peter bid us to be humble-minded, lest pride and haughtiness should lead us to despise our neighbors. Why would we grow to despise one another? Because we're haughty, we're prideful. James would say our passions are at war within us. We want what we want. And that causes dissensions and wars. We become prideful, and in our pride we see ourselves as independent, and in our independence we say, I don't need you. We no longer need one another. Humility 
unites the people of God because it produces a dependence upon one another. Never as in an addition to God or a substitute for dependence upon God, but seeing the people of God as Christ's ordained means for encouragement and help. If you came and put your head on my shoulder and then somebody else walked up and said, hey, this is kind of weird. He's got your head on you. He's leaning on you. I would say, I wouldn't say, well, he's not leaning on me. He's leaning on my shoulder. No, my shoulder is me, right? It's the same picture with the mystical body of Christ. When we lean on one another, looking to them for the the help and the graces and the gifts that Christ has given to them, we are leaning on Christ through His mystical body, making use of His Spirit and the gifts that are at work in His people. And that that is not going to happen if you think, I don't need anyone else. But humility causes us to realize how much we do need one another. When we realize how much we need one another... We're like the people uh, in, in Mala's neighborhood in Malawi that, that come to the well every day. The same people at the same time. They all congregate at the well every day because they recognize if we don't have water, we die. So we're all going to meet here and we're going to get our water and go about our day. The, the coming to the well draws us together. If anyone felt that he had no need for water... He wouldn't be drawn to the well, nor to the others who were at the well. And eventually he would die. Why? Because of his foolish self-sufficiency. I don't need water. Those who recognize their insufficiency are drawn together and live, not on one another, but by by that which gives life to them all, the well. We, We are drawn to one another as we are drawn to Christ. We have to recognize we are insufficient in ourselves. We need Christ to live. We need His grace to live. And oftentimes that comes through the vehicle of His people, His saints. So we are to be humble-minded. And then the word that's translated courteous or kind or modest, literally friendly-minded. A related word is found in Acts 28. 28.7, Publius received Paul and the other shipwrecked men and entertained them hospitably for three days. That word hospitably is the adverbial form of the word that's translated in in some texts as courteous. The, The definition of the word, or one definition of the word is gentle, think about this, gentle and affable, carrying it friendly to one another, seeking those things which may be most agreeable to each other, shunning all moroseness, stiffness, and incivility. So to be friendly-minded is to be affable, good-natured, personable, charming, likable. You should be working hard to be a likable person person. Be personable to one another. Shun moroseness. Morose is is defined as ill-tempered, sullen, and sulky. Shun that, according to this definition. Shun moroseness. Shun stiffness. To be stiff is to be unrelaxed or severe or difficult. Shun that. Incivility is lack of refinement. Bad-tempered or rude. 1 Corinthians 13, one translation could read, love is not rude. Love does not purposefully go against received cultural norms just because. That's incivility. 
Shun that. Don't be the kind of person that is simply off-putting to regular, normal people. Now, there are some people that are put off by everybody that they meet. They're not regular, normal people. Christians should be the type of person that is generally liked by regular, normal people in your demeanor, in the way that you carry yourself and present yourself. I think it's clear that if we're going to obtain and maintain unity, then we cannot fall into the trap of thinking that once we've been around one another for a year or two or five or ten or thirty, that we can eventually stop endeavoring to be generally joyful, relatable, charming people. Now, think of it this way. That foot that you put forward the first time you come, or the first time someone else comes and they walk in the door, that, that's, that's usually our most affable character. Hello, how are you? Where are you from? How'd you hear about us? Did you have a good drive in? Are these all your children? Tell them. We're, we put on this delightfulness, like, like me, like me, like me, like me. But then after a while, hey, well, there they are. I don't care if you like me or not. You're here with me. And we can't be that way. Sometimes it can be like this in a marriage, right? When, when you first meet, you're dating, you, 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 you put your best foot forward. You're trying to draw the person to yourself. You take a, a shower once or twice a week. You brush your teeth every day. Things like that. I want to get them to like me. And then after you get married, well, they're stuck with me now. You know, I haven't seen my toothbrush in weeks. We, we, don't, we, we don't care to try to, to draw our spouse toward us anymore because we just assume, well, you're stuck with me and I'm just going to resort back to my cantankerous self that I was when we met. I just faked it that whole time to, to drag you in. And oftentimes church membership is that way. And we can't be that way. That's not Christian. A man named Alexander Nisbet defines this term as affable and pleasant in carriage. Carry yourself in a pleasant way. Smile and be cordial. And I would say, teach your children to do the same. I'm trying to do this with ours. When a stranger speaks to you, it's okay to look at their face and smile and even speak back from time to time. Teach them that because it's Christian. Christian people are affable people. It's almost as if we live our lives going after the hearts of our brothers and sisters. We, we want them to like us and to be agreeable with us. We want to have friends. We, we're always trying to seek them and win them as our friends, as, as Matthew, 5, or Matthew 18 says. If, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've won your brother. Some people say, well, I don't, what, is this supposed to be a trophy or something? But that's the way Christ seed it. We, we saw it. We want to win one another. We can never presume upon church membership or even membership vows for doing the work for us of binding our hearts together in heart and mind. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. And He does it by working in us these gracious virtues which belong, again, fully and perfectly to Jesus Christ. Never was a human nature so tender as Christ's. Never was there greater humility than we see in Christ. Never was there one more friendly, likable, and generally attractive than Jesus Christ. Everyone came to Him. He was attractive, not physically, but in His person. 
And there was never a man more perfectly human in mind and heart than Jesus Christ. If we are to obtain and maintain unity, then we must seek to have the Holy Spirit continue to produce in us these gracious inner man virtues, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, humble minds, friendly, cordial demeanor. These are the type of people we are to be. It's interesting, and I'll point this out again. I think I've already said this once, but you've got this, this one trait, unity of mind, that takes us straight to the thinking of, of doctrine and theology and nailing down the issues of the gospel and, and faith. But then all of these other things are just character traits producing us by the Spirit. We, we must be people of the book. That's where we, we get all of this. We must know and affirm and root all that we are and say and do in sound doctrine. But if our doctrine doesn't lead us to become more and more like our magnificent Savior, then you've not got it yet. We've not gotten it yet. And so let's pray that God would help us. Well, I'll read to you the account from Matthew's Gospel of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. We have tried to point out, and it's been mentioned and, and even spoken in the prayers, that Christ is our supreme exemplar in every perfection. There are a lot of people who believe that Christ is a good example. We do not believe that Christ is merely our example. He acted as our substitute. He is our salvation. In the breaking of the bread, we are reminded of His body, broken, where ours ought to have been broken. He was crushed where we ought to have been crushed. He's more to us than an example. As we read in the psalm, he's, He is the fountain. He is life. He is light. He, he is everything to us. And He invites us to come to His table and to seek His grace. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As we come to the Lord's table, we are to do it in remembrance of Him, but also with ex examination of ourselves to see to it that we're looking beyond the, the means of grace to the author of grace Himself. So as the elements are distributed, consider Christ crucified as our substitute and then we will come to the table together.